All right, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 20. If you have one of our welcome table Bibles, it starts on page 15. Like I said, we're going to be, um, we're going to go a little bit out of order this week just because Genesis 19 has some sensitive material and, um, and we'll be in that next week when we have Redeemer Kids available. It's been seven weeks since we've been in Genesis between our, uh, between our Christmas series and then just all that January has been. Uh, we have, now we're finally back here, okay? And, and the funny thing is that the passage we're going to read today, it's going to sound really familiar. We're going to go start getting through this, and you'll be like, hold on, we've already done this. We've already heard this message, okay? And, and, and like, didn't, didn't, we, didn't we already see this somewhere? And, and yes, the answer is yes, but also no, okay? But what, what happens here in Genesis 20, it's, it's really similar to what we saw at the end of Genesis 12, and we'll, we'll touch on that as we go through it this morning, but as we read through Genesis 20, it's going to become quickly evident that Abraham has not learned from his past mistakes, but today we will see that there is real hope for repeat offenders, okay? And, and listen, that's really good news if you are slow to learn like I am and like Abraham is. God has real hope for repeat offenders. And so I want to ask that he opens his word up to us and then we'll dig in. So Father, we thank you for your word that it's steadfast and true. We thank you that it teaches us your nature and character and opens our eyes to our nature and character, helps us see our need for you and helps us see how you've met that need for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that through Abraham's repeated failures, you would help us to honestly look at our own hearts and see where we fail repeatedly. And Lord, as your children, that you would not bring us to shame and condemnation, but show us how that has been removed already in Christ and how you continue to make us more and more like him, patiently, compassionately, graciously, by the way that you intervene in our lives day after day after day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most difficult and frustrating aspects of our lives as believers, of the Christian walk, is our ongoing struggle against the sin that remains in our hearts, right? Now, we can think about, it's also frustrating to see that ongoing struggle in others, but, but if we take an honest look at our own hearts, I think if you've ever um, repeated the same sin, if you've ever been disheartened, if you've ever been frustrated by your repeated failure in a specific area, then you understand what I'm talking about, right? This struggle, so there's a reason we call it a struggle against sin. We battle against sin. We try to stand firm against it, right? But we often repeat these failures because we tend to gravitate toward what is familiar. And so when we're faced with, with uncomfortable or uncertain situations, we often, we often uh, default to self-preservation, and, and, and comfort for ourselves, sometimes in the form of, of temporary pleasure or whatever. We, we revert back to our old sinful habits. The reality is, like Abraham, we are all repeat offenders, whether we care to admit that or not. But here's what we're going to see this morning, and here's what we need to remember, is that God's plan of redemption is not dependent upon our performance. It's dependent upon his. 
God's plan of redemption is not dependent upon our performance. It's dependent upon his. His plan of redemption is a plan that involves his intervention in our lives, the necessary intervention of God in the lives of sinners. And we're going to see that this morning. God is active here. And so let's take a look at what he does. uh, uh, Look at verses 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in, in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. Sound familiar? If you remember at the end of Genesis 12, Abraham goes, went down to Egypt because there was this severe famine, right? In, in, in the land of Canaan. And, and he convinced Sarah to tell the Egyptian officials that she was his sister in, uh, because he was afraid that they would kill him if they knew that she was his wife. And then Abraham's plan backfired when Sarah was taken into the house of Pharaoh, and the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with a, a bunch of severe plagues because of it. And as a result, Pharaoh gave Abraham the what for and then kicked him and Sarah out of Egypt, told them to take all their possessions with them. So they came down because there was food there, and now they have to leave and go back to the land of Canaan, right? This time, though, there's no severe famine in the land. There's no reason that's given as to why Abraham packed up his tent and moved away from the oaks of Mamre, Mamre, uh, where he's been staying. But regardless of the reason, we're told that, that he traveled to this region of the Negev, which we've heard that before. This is the southern region in the land of Canaan. It's between Canaan and Egypt, okay? It's on the southern border there. And so he's still in the promised land when he comes to, uh, when he settled in Gerar. Now, Gerar is home of the Philistines. That name should sound familiar. We're not, we're not into their history yet. Uh, but Abimelech was their king. Abimelech's most likely not this man's name, but his title. So if you think of as Pharaoh is to Egypt, Abimelech is to Gerar, okay? Um, and just like Pharaoh thought Sarah was Abraham's sister and brought her into his house, so too then Abimelech, he thought the same thing, and he did the same thing. But again, like God had done in Egypt, he once again intervened in the situation. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, You are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. I've also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die you and all who are yours. Now, there's a couple important things that we don't want to miss here. And the first is this contrast between Abimelech and Abraham. Who is the righteous one and who is the guilty one in this story? Abraham was God's chosen one, but he lied to protect himself just like he'd done with Pharaoh. Abimelech was this foreign king who didn't know God, but he's the one who acted with integrity in this situation. He didn't know he was taking another man's wife. 
He thought she was Abraham's sister because that's what Abraham said to him. That's what Sarah said to him. Abimelech did it with a clear conscience and, and, and clean hands, literally with integrity of heart. And God agrees. God affirms that in verse 6. Here's what we need to know, though. This does not mean that Abimelech is righteous or has integrity in everything he did. When he brought her into his household, he's bringing her into his harem. Okay? But the fact that he has a harem does not neglect his innocence in this matter with Sarah. We need to understand that. Okay? The point here is that Abraham, Abraham, is supposed to be this righteous one who acts with integrity, but he doesn't. And his failure is made embarrassingly clear by the contrast of Abimelech's innocence in this matter. We're going to see this contrast all throughout this passage this morning. Abimelech is the one that's upright. Abraham is the one that's super jacked up. Okay? Did you catch Abimelech's question in in verse 4 when he's talking to God in the dream. After we're told that, that he hadn't had physical relations with Sarah, Abimelech said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it's innocent? Now, again, it's been seven weeks since we've been in Genesis, but the last chapter we were in was chapter 18. And there was a question really similar that Abraham asked there. After God told Abraham that he, what he was about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham asked him, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Won't the God, uh, the judge of the whole earth, do what is just? Abimelech's echo of that question here in verse 4, it's meant to draw our attention back to that and help us see that these roles, the righteous and the guilty, have been flipped right now. Abimelech has, has taken Abraham's place in this story as the righteous one, as the one who's appealing to God. But even more than important than Abimelech's integrity is God's intervention because it's God's activity here that protects everyone in this situation and safeguards his promise. Look at God's grace to come to a foreign king, a, a pagan nation uh, in a dream to King Abimelech in a dream that night and to reveal the, the reality of the situation, to just let him know, hey, this is what's going on and it's wrong. And then to warn him of the consequences that Abimelech would bring upon himself. Yes, he's innocent. He hasn't touched her, but now he has to be obedient. God says, you need to give her back, or you and your house will surely die. This is grace for God to warn this man who's undeserving of anything. And then after Abimelech appealed to his own clean conscience and God affirmed it, we see why Abimelech was able to declare his innocence. This is striking, God says, I have kept you from sinning against me. Verse 4 tells us that Abimelech had not approached Sarah. Verse 6 tells us it's because God didn't let him touch her. Okay, so hang on then, right? Just a second. If God kept Abimelech from sinning against him, why doesn't God just keep us from sinning against him too? Wouldn't that be way easier Why do we continue to struggle with the same sins if God has the power to keep us from sinning? 
These are, these are valid questions, but we need to understand the circumstance and the situation here in order to answer these. We need to understand what God was doing in this particular situation with Abimelech and how that leads then to what God does and has done and continues to do with us in our own particular situations. Why would it be so necessary for God to intervene in this case and keep Abimelech from sinning? You know what happens in chapter 21? Isaac is born. The promised son finally arrives, the one that we've been waiting for along with Abraham for some 25 years. Remember back in chapter 17 and 18 when God told Abraham and Sarah that she would give birth to a son in about a year? We're within the time frame that if any other man touches her, there could be reasonable doubt that Abraham is not the father of this promised son. By keeping Abimelech from sinning in this case, God was protecting the integrity of his promise and sovereignly carrying out his redemptive plan. And it's through the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that he would deal then with our sin once and for all. Back in Genesis 3.15, God promised an offspring would come from Eve who would be the one to crush the serpent's head and to reverse the curse of sin. Through God's covenant with Abraham, we learned then that this promised serpent crusher would come from Abraham's own line. It would be one of his descendants. God would then go on to take the covenant that he made with Abraham and renew it with Isaac. We'll see this later in Genesis. And then again, through Isaac's son, Jacob, Jacob becomes Israel, and the nation of Israel comes from him. And out of the nation of Israel would be born the one, the promised King Messiah, who would save God's people from their sins and crush the serpent's head. We know that Messiah King to be Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life of integrity, cleanness of hands and heart in all areas. Never sinned even once. And then he willingly died on the cross to pay the full penalty for our sin. And then he rose from the grave on the third day to show that the price that he paid to redeem us was enough and that God truly has the power to overcome sin and death, those things that we were once enslaved to that we ourselves could never overcome. And after he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven, Jesus then sent the Holy Spirit, to dwell in everyone who relies on him for forgiveness and salvation. Why? So that we would grow to be more and more like our Savior while we wait for his return. God's carrying out his plan. If you're a follower of Christ, it is paramount. It is vital that you know that God has already dealt fully and finally with all of your sin. All of it. Past, present, future, even the ones that you continue to repeat. Through Christ's crucifixion, God has removed the penalty of your sin forever, and he's given you his righteousness uh, forever, the righteousness of his son. These things don't go away. Those things don't change. This is your justification. This is, this is your forgiveness and righteousness before God. That's permanent and when Christ returns, God will remove ultimately the presence of sin altogether, and you'll never struggle with it again, Lord, come, right? 
You'll never struggle with it again because you will then be perfect. You will be in the image of your Savior, your Creator. This is called glorification. And in the in-between, you know what's happening? Your sanctification. It's this progressive removal of sin's power in your life as you grow more and more dependent upon God and less and less dependent upon yourself, more and more confident in Christ and less and less confident in yourself. And as you do that, you grow in conformity to the one whose righteousness you've been given. For the rest of our lives, as believers, God graciously and patiently, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. And in who he is, he graciously and patiently helps us comprehend more and more this righteousness that we've already been given in Christ so that more and more we obey him freely as a response of worship rather than an attempt to earn any righteousness on our own. 2 Peter 1 tells us that God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. There's another verse for your list that we shared last week on God's goodness. Titus 2, 11 through 14, these are Redeemer's foundational verses. They tell us that God's grace enables us to deny sinful desires, to live actually in a righteous and godly way while we wait for Christ's return. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that the temptations that we face, they're not unique to us, they're common to all humanity. And God, who is compassionate and faithful, he's, he, he enables us to endure those temptations and he provides a way out. He provides a way of escape so that we don't see sin as our only logical option to be done with that situation. In order for us to stop repeating the sins, we need to see God's intervening grace. We need to see him as the option, as the way out. Not just, I just if I just get in, give in, I'll get this over with. Listen to what God has given us. God's son gave us the righteousness that we need. God's spirit gives us the power and the wisdom that we need. God's word gives us the truth that we need. God's church this is why we gather together. This is why we need to be in each other's lives. Gives us the encouragement that we need. God's promise of Christ's return gives us the hope that we need to live with integrity of heart right now and resist the power of sin that remains in our lives. And God's given us prayer as, as a way to honestly express our need for help that he richly provides. I think I forgot to say this in the announcements this morning, but... February is, what, tomorrow or something? Tuesday. First Tuesday of the month. Prayer meeting here at 6.30. God's given us prayer to confess our need for him, not just to do that, but, but that's a huge part. Listen, we can pray what David prays in Psalm 19, 12 and 13. Who perceives his unintentional sins? I don't even know what's in my heart, totally. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover... Keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. 
Matthew 6, 13, Jesus himself teaches us how to pray. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We can pray for God to keep us from sinning. Sometimes our faith is shaky, right? Sometimes we don't trust in God's provision or in his promises. Sometimes we find the pleasure of sin more appealing than the protection of our Savior. And that's why then we sometimes repeat the sins that, we, that so easily entangle us, the sins that we know are sins, and yet we just follow that path that's well-trod. But instead of questioning why God doesn't just keep us from sinning, here it is. We need to see that God has gracefully intervened in our lives to keep our sins from ever counting against us again. That's far greater. Yes, we will, there will be a day when we sin no more, but that comes because of what God has already done through Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about this when we went through Genesis 12. We'll say it again. That's, this does not give us free reign to just continue sinning. Paul says that's an abuse of God's grace. We don't take advantage of what we've been given freely. Instead, this reality that, that God has already taken care of, of the penalty for our sins through Christ, this, this reality magnifies God's grace toward us whenever we fail and keeps us from believing that we have to earn our way back to him when we do sin, even when we repeat the same ones. I heard someone once give a helpful explanation that illustrates this. Let's say everybody just, you, you, you rode your bike here today. Okay, let's pretend it's not like two degrees outside. And, um, and, and after this, we're all just gonna, we're gonna ride our bikes back home, okay? You get on your bike, you start riding through town, and your balance is terrible. And you fall over and over and over again on your way home. Every time you fall, when you get back up, do you start over here? you'd never get to where you're going. When you fall on your bike, you get back up and you, you're in the same place and you just keep going. You just keep going from where you're at until you reach your destination. Listen, when we fall in, in sin as believers, even over and over, we, we don't start back over from the beginning. We don't reset everything that God has already done and accomplished in us. God's grace enables us to get back up and to keep going from where we fell until we reach our destination. And God's grace and his grace alone enables us to reach our destination because God's grace is what secured it for us in the first place through Jesus. This is why it's also God's grace to confront us with the reality of our sin. Look at verse eight. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up called his servants together and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you've brought such enormous guilt on me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never have been done. Abimelech said, or also asked Abraham, what, what made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought there was absolutely no fear of God in this place. 
They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he is my brother. Let's just, let's just pause for a moment and look at Abimelech's eagerness to obey the Lord here. It says he got up early in the morning, probably shortly after the dream ended. Like, would you go back to sleep after that? I wouldn't. He got up, wasted no time, gathered his servants together, didn't trust anybody else with this message, and told them himself, listen, guys, we have a problem. And here's how we solve it, or here's how we, we need to obey this, this God who came to me and told me these things. They needed to get Sarah back to Abraham as soon as possible. And so Abimelech called Abraham, and when Abraham came, Abimelech, he had some questions for him, Right? There's no sugarcoating anything here. The Bible is, is brutally honest with our sin. Verse 9 makes it clear that Abraham's sin was so grievous and, and so damaging to the lives of others. It couldn't be overlooked. The fact that he was God's chosen man and a prophet didn't diminish what he had done. Abraham did things that should never have been done. And he heard this from a pagan king. who also does things that should never be done. And yet this is who God chose to reveal Abraham's shortcomings. Through Abimelech's line of questioning, not only is Abraham's sin exposed, but also the motives of his heart are revealed to us. In verse 10, Abimelech asked Abraham, what made you do this? In other words, Abraham, what in the world were you thinking? What are you thinking? Literally it says, what did you see that you would do this. You know every time in scripture when somebody sees something that's good in their own eyes never leads anywhere good. Right? Verse 11 tells us what Abraham was thinking. He wrongly assumed that Abimelech and, and the Philistines had no fear of God and they would kill Abraham in order to take Sarah from him. But Abimelech's own actions here proved Abraham's assumptions wrong. We need to be careful not to assume that just because somebody doesn't know God that they won't actually revere him and fear him when they encounter him. If we held that assumption, why would we ever want to share the gospel with anybody? God uses the very proclamation of the gospel as the means through which he brings about the transformation of a person's heart. We're told in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. To assume that someone who hears the gospel won't be changed by it is to deny the power of God to change hearts and transform lives. Listen, let's not forget that we too were once blind and deaf to the reality of our sin and our need for Jesus. And if it wasn't for his grace, and his grace alone, we would still be blind and deaf to that reality, doing whatever it is that we saw fit in our own eyes. God opened our eyes. God unstopped our ears to see and hear the good news of the gospel, and God gave us a new heart to believe what we heard. Why can't he do that for someone else? In verse 12, Abraham gave a, a half-hearted excuse in order to justify what he did. He told Abimelech, look, look, listen, look. 
I wasn't totally lying to you when I told you that she was my sister. We have the same father, but not the same mother. Now, we could talk all about that, okay? There was no law preventing that. There's a law that comes in later in, in, with Moses and that generation. But again, this God is working a plan here. We talked about this before. He's not, he, he's not uh, condoning sin. He's redeeming sinners, okay? But we need to understand this from, from this particular instance. Telling a half-truth is no better than telling a full lie. They're both deceptive and sinful. We don't downplay our sin. But we're really good at trying to, aren't we? This is why it's God's grace to confront us with the reality of our sin. It's actually because Christ has already paid our penalty that we can be completely honest about those things that we've done, that we shouldn't have done. We can freely confess our wrong because Christ has covered even our most enormous guilt. We can readily admit what we've done because Christ has removed our condemnation by what he has done. Romans 8, there's, now no, there's therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no asterisk there. There's no caveat to that. That's the reality that we live as believers. We don't have to try to sweet talk our way into the grace that we've already been given. Verse 13, we see Abraham's behavior wasn't primarily driven by these assumptions that he made about Abimelech and the Philistines. Instead, we see this goes back even farther. This is, a, this is part of a scheme of self-preservation that he had concocted long before he had ever entered their land. Let's go back to the beginning for a minute, okay? Let's go back to Genesis 12, 1 through 5. The Lord said to Abraham, this is when he first calls Abraham, a.k.a. Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he had left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, a.k.a. Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. When God called Abraham, Abram at the time, he didn't tell Abraham everything that he was going to do, but he definitely made it clear that Abraham was in good hands, right? I mean, all those things that he promised there, it's pretty clear. God promised Abraham land and offspring and blessings. He even promised to deal harshly with anyone who mistreated Abraham or his family. Abraham had nothing to fear. Nothing. But here in verse 13, we see that when Abraham took his wife and set out for the land of Canaan, he took matters into his own hands and he concocted his own plan. Just in case, right? Self-protection. He told Sarah to show her loyalty to him by playing the brother-sister card wherever they went. His plan wasn't reactive. It was preemptive. That's why we see similar stories in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh and then here in Genesis 20 with Abimelech. And these are just two of the stories that Scripture tells us about. 
But this is his plan from the beginning. Everywhere they go, if he feels a threat, they're playing this card. He's a repeat offender. Look at how Abraham portrays God in verse 13. He's talking to Abimelech here, right? He says, when God had me wander from my father's house, does that sound like someone who's trusting in God to lead him and protect him to you? Or does that sound more like Adam's accusation of God in the Garden of Eden? That woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. When Abimelech asked Abraham, what made you do this? Abraham's response is essentially, God did. Instead of taking responsibility for his actions and confessing his sin, Abraham excused it away with a half-truth and blamed God for putting him in that situation to begin with. Why does God keep the pagan from sinning and allow the chosen one to, to... just screw everything up. Abraham's blaming God. But listen, none of that throws God off course. None of it. None of that changes God's relationship with Abraham. None of that alters his sovereign plan that he is carrying out through this man who we would cast off in a heartbeat and start over with somebody else. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I'm giving your brother, notice he says brother instead of husband, I'm giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. And then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Once again, Abimelech is shown in a positive light here, and his generosity on top of his innocence only serves to contrast Abraham's selfishness and his guilt And the author notes that Abimelech returned Sarah to Abraham just as God told him to do. God says, you got to give her back. So he did. Once again, highlighting Abimelech's obedience over Abraham's disobedience. But we need to see this. By giving Abraham flocks and herds and slaves, Abimelech wasn't admitting any wrongdoing here. Or he wasn't repaying any guilt. He wasn't compensating for something. He only would have been guilty in this situation if he hadn't returned Sarah. That's what God says in, uh, back in verse 7 or somewhere in there. You need to give her back or you'll die, right? In chapter 12... Pharaoh booted Abraham and Sarah and all of their possessions out of Egypt. But here Abimelech invites them to stay in the land, settle wherever they want. Abimelech is blessing them here. He's blessing Abraham and his family. Verse 16 is is important. It ties us back to what was said in verses 4 and 6. A thousand pieces of silver 
was more than one worker could make in a lifetime, okay? It's an obscene amount of money in this day. And there's a purpose to it. Abimelech gave it to Abraham as this public affirmation for all of the people who who would leave with Abraham and Sarah that he had not touched her, that he had not had relations with Sarah, and he was vindicating her then of any guilt in that matter, any accusations to the contrary. Now, there is no ground, absolutely none, for anyone to assume that Abimelech could be the father of Isaac when he's born in chapter 21. And after all this, God blessed Abimelech and his household so that the women would be able to have children again because God had closed all their wombs when Abimelech and, uh, uh, brought Sarah into his house. And, and these details help us understand, they remind us again that God has the power to make the fertile wombs barren and the barren wombs fertile, and that sovereign power will be reminded of again when we get to chapter 21. And, and 90-year-old uh, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. But let's not miss how God brought about the blessing to Abimelech here and his household. What happened? Abraham prayed to God on their behalf, and God healed them, which is exactly what God told Abimelech would happen back in verse 7. God said, now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. Hold on. Isn't Abraham the guilty one in this story? Like, what was, was God overlooking the fact that Abraham manipulated this king in order to preserve his own life at the expense of his wife? Why does Abraham get to be a part of this? Couldn't God just have blessed Abimelech without Abraham? Without having Abraham pray for him? He already came to Abimelech in a dream without Abraham. He kept Abimelech from sinning without Abraham. If Abraham was around in our day and culture, we would have canceled him already. Right? Back in chapter 12, like before he even got started. This is not the guy. Why did God use this repeat offender to bless the man who was clearly more righteous in this instance? Because God chose Abraham to be the one through whom the nations would be blessed. God chose Abraham to be the one through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. God didn't choose Abraham because of Abraham's qualifications or because of his behavior or because of his status or because of his faith or because of anything that Abraham was or did or said. God chose Abraham because of God's own power and grace and goodness. And not even Abraham's selfish schemes could change or alter or redirect God's sovereign plan of redemption. Before Abraham ever had a chance to mess things up, in chapter 12, God promised to make him into a great nation, to bless him and to bless all the peoples of the earth through him. In Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you. What did Abimelech do to Abraham in these verses that we just read? He blessed him. What did God do to Abimelech in the verses we just read? He blessed him. God's keeping his promise. I will bless those who bless you. 
God was carrying out his plan, and Abraham's foolishness didn't derail even a little bit of it. Instead, in his divine wisdom and power and grace, God used Abraham's foolishness to carry God's plan forward and prove himself to be faithful to his promises. God brought about blessing to the nations through this screw-up because that's exactly what God had planned, what God had promised. Listen, this is really, really good news for anyone who is a repeat offender like Abraham. God's plan isn't dependent upon our performance. You need to know God's plan is not dependent upon your performance. I need to know God's plan is not dependent upon my performance. That's because God's plan is a plan of redemption for repeat offenders like you and me. That's the whole purpose of it. It's all about his intervening grace in our lives. It's about him coming to do what we could not, cannot, will not His plan of redemption shows us that none of us can rely on our own performance. We must rely on the performance of another. Who is that? His one and only son, Jesus Christ, who obeyed the Father perfectly, who died to pay the full debt of all our sin, and who rose to set us free from self-reliance and slavery to sin and death. Whose performance are you relying on this morning? Abraham's behavior here only serves to emphasize his own need for God to intervene and carry out his sovereign plan of redemption. It's not going to get done if it's on Abraham. And through Abraham's need, God has graced us this morning to, and allowed us to see our own need. The fact that we repeat our sins reveals our own need to be rescued from not only them, but from our own hearts that are prone to wander right back to the things that we should not do. The fact that God's plan of rescue isn't dependent upon our performance reveals that he alone is able to provide the very thing that we need. That's why God must intervene with his grace. Christ died for Abraham's repeated failures. That's where all this is leading. You go read Romans 3. 21 through 26, 27, somewhere in there. It explains why God seemingly overlooked sins in the past. It's because he's getting to Jesus where those sins would be paid for. Christ died for Abraham's repeated failures. Believer, Christ has died for your repeated failures. All of them. God has intervening grace for repeat offenders. I don't think the news gets better than that. His plan of redemption is his plan of intervention in the lives of sinners who fail over and over because we cannot rescue ourselves. May his intervening grace lead us to run to him repeatedly instead of back, instead of returning to our sin. And may we respond to him with worshipful obedience, bearing the fruit of that grace in our lives as we continue to depend on the grace that we've so freely been given. And may we, as people who have experienced and continue to experience that grace, be those who freely share that with others. 
Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you have intervened. You've come to us when we did not deserve it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we confess our unworthiness. And we celebrate your graciousness, your compassion, your mercy through your son. I pray this week that when we're tempted to return to those things that don't save, those things that drag us back down in the path of death, that we would see Christ, that we would remember your grace, your mercy, your compassion, And that by your power and your power alone, Lord, you would keep us from those sins that so easily entangle us. And you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Confident in the promise that you are faithful to begin what you began, to, to finish what you began in us. All for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.